0: Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. This week, yes, we're going to talk about COP27 in Egypt, but you will actually, I think, take heaps from this. We're going to speak to someone who was there. We're going to get his quick summary of what went down, what worked, what didn't, what it was actually like over there in Sham El Sheikh in Egypt, where COP27 happened, and plenty more. Now, still on COPS, we're going to speak about COP31, which may be held in Australia in 2026 and nearby nations. We're bidding for it. We'll tell you what might be holding that back, but why it also might be good for us to hold it. We're going to talk about pet food because pet food is an environmentally problematic thing. We'll get stuck into that. With my pal, yes, Elfie Scott. I went there, Elfie, <laughs> didn't I? I am so sorry, but how are you today? I'm at Charwood, by the way, if anyone cares. But you're <laughs> a Scott, and that's the most important thing. And Elfie, how are that's you? That's
1: not true. And stop talking yourself down on the bloody podcast. But it is lovely to be here with you again. It is a particularly windy day in Sydney at the moment, and you were talking about an Antarctic vortex before. What, why are we in a vortex? What's happening right now? That's the
0: polar vortex. Look, uh, if you want to start me talking about weather, how long do we have? Do we have 11 years? But, but look, <laughs> in really simple terms, there's a thing called the polar vortex. It circulates uh, both poles. And for one reason or another, our polar vortex is at the moment being pushed far north. That's why it's 10 degrees in Melbourne as we record this podcast on Monday afternoon. And 25 degrees in Sydney. There's some seriously cold air down south. It ain't affecting us up here. In fact, I I believe it's about 35 in Brisbane. So if you are listening to us from southeast Queensland uh, today or whenever you listen to the pod, good for you. Enjoy the warm weather. (laughs) We're going okay. It's just windy here. There's a wind warning out, Elfie, for 12 million Australians today. Dangerous wind.
1: Oh, there you go.
0: So that's about basically half of us. And look, you did start a weather convo. I warned you it's dangerous. I will zip my lips tight now because I just go on about weather forever. And let us rip into this week's Green News Stories.
1: Yes. Okay, we'll start off with the first news story, but it is about coal. So that does give you the right to talk a lot more, <laughs> And because I expect you're going to get chatty about this one. So our first story today is about Australian coal exporters. So there was a big story in the Sydney Morning Herald this week by the fantastic Nick O'Malley who wrote about the scam. Basically, coal exporters have been fudging data to make it look cleaner than it actually is. So, Anne, I didn't know this about coal, but apparently the drier the coal is, is the cleaner that it burns and a whole range of players in the coal industry including coal testing laboratories onshore in Australia have been testing Australian coal before it's exported and making it look drier than it actually is. So this week independent Andrew Wilkie is going to speak about this in parliament uh, after he was provided with thousands of documents from an industry whistleblower. There have actually been stories about this for a couple of years but I just I'm not sure that it was on quite the mag magnitude of what Wilkie is about to expose. In fact, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, one major laboratory in 2020 that said that about half its data for the previous 13 years had been, quote, manually amended without justification, uh, which is it's an interesting way of saying was cheated. And uh, Last week, ASIC said that they were declining to take on that investigation, but have so far failed to explain why. Anyway, something's amiss in the coal industry. We are getting dirtier coal overseas than is perhaps written on paper is the issue.
0: Alfie, when Andrew Wilkie takes something on board, the long-serving independent, um, it's usually a sketchy industry. He, of course, is the guy who took on the pokies lobby and oh, has taken him on for years. So if Wilkie's into you, you're probably an industry of ill repute. Now, <laughs> I am not stunned, not shocked, I tell you, to learn that the coal industry is fudging information about itself. Um, look, I think they, they tell a lot of lies. They, 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 they talk about, you know, clean coal they talk about the fact that 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 coal's not going anywhere and as we'll hear in the interview today it absolutely is um you know according to financial institutions it's in a lot of trouble the coal industry so this is just the sort of latest way that it's fudging information for Australians it is unimpressive but it's not surprising
1: yeah Absolutely. All right. Now let's move on. Let's talk about Australia's COP bid. So Ant, you are probably obviously aware by now that Australia has put in our bid to co-host COP here in 2026. Do you mind explaining a little bit about what that event will look like and why we seem to be in trouble yet again with some Pacific nations?
0: (laughs) Well, actually, I I forgot to check before we we record today when when the announcement is, but um, look, Whenever it is, I don't think there'll be a huge crowd in in the uh, in the street waiting uh, waiting for waiting for the house. Well, Elfie, I'm I'm older than you by about a thirty eight decades, and I I was down at Circular Quay in Sydney um, in 1993, I think it was when they announced the Sydney 2000 uh, successful candidacy uh to host to host the olympics
1: yeah 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 Yeah, right interesting yeah
0: yeah yeah it was pretty so i don't think there'll be that sort of crowd but but nonetheless i think a lot of australians will be hoping we host it and here's why it's actually a phenomenally large event elfie as you'll hear in our interview today um there are something like sixty thousand attendees to cop um This is a phenomenally large number of people. I mean, to use that Olympics example again, there are something like 11 or 12,000 athletes at an Olympics and about 20,000, uh, officials, coaches, media, you name it. So you're looking at an influx of like 30 or 40,000 people. This is bigger than an Olympics, Elfie. It is bigger than an Olympics. So it's a boon for the hotel industry, um, it's it's terrific for a lot of industries you know we would co-host it across the pacific but it would still be massive but but vanuatu's not happy with us and their view and views like them uh, might thwart our bid mightn't they
1: Yes, absolutely. So Vanuatu has taken a stand and told The Guardian that their support is going to be conditional on whether or not we keep subsidizing fossil fuel developments. So Ralph Reganavu, who is Vanuatu's climate change minister, has said that Albanese's government may be afraid breath of fresh air after the Morrison government but it's still going to withhold endorsement for the COP bid if Australia keeps investing all of this money in developing fossil fuels and they're actually calling on other Pacific nations to take on this stance which to my mind is completely fair enough but I would also say that yes the idea of holding a COP here would be incredibly exciting for those of us who are environmentally minded care about climate change and could suddenly have a place on shore to go and protest outside of that would be (laughs) amazing. I can
0: already um, see you sort of making your your little placard uh, out 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 in the back there. You little know? big, yeah, big big placard yeah, with your magic markers and your cardboard or whatever you're going to hold up.
1: Um, oh God, yeah.
0: And you're right, Elfie. You're right. Um, in all seriousness, that is an aspect I overlooked. Uh, silly me. I talked about the economic uh, benefit for Australia. It would be a windfall, but you're right. It would be a terrific opportunity, not just for green-minded people to protest at the event, but for green-minded people to get involved, to play a part, to make connections that would serve them across a lifetime. So really? I really hope that uh, COP 20, uh, what is it, COP 31 does happen here in 2026 and that we can keep Vanuatu happy because yes. I hate an angry Vanuatu.
1: <laughs> and fossil fuel developments. All right. Now, <laughs> speaking it. of COPs, let's talk about what happened at COP 27 because you had a fantastic interview this week, didn't you, Aunt?
0: Well, Elfie, that's very kind of you to say, and you say that every week, and statistically some of them are going to be less than fantastic, but it was you that teed this up for me, so thank you very much for doing that legwork. Now, the interview was with Peter Newman. Um, He's a a professor of uh, sustainability at Curtin University in WA, and I don't want to give too much away. Peter was over there. He was doing great work. Why don't we have a chat about what he said after we roll the interview? Okay, so we've been discussing the wrap up of COP27, and really to complete that task, we need to speak to somebody who was there. And we're very fortunate on the Green Canary today to have with us a distinguished Australian who was there. We speak of Peter Newman, who is the John Curtin Distinguished Professor of Sustainability at Curtin university you're literally distinguished i just used that word but that's it's official peter newman uh so peter you were over there at cop uh thank you for coming on the green canary how was cop 27
2: ah uh, well distinguished doesn't matter when you're at cop <laughs> um and uh it uh, it was a lot of fun actually there were sixty thousand people there it's wow. the biggest climate show of his in history and It was extraordinary to see the range of people now committed and totally involved. There were demonstrations every few minutes of the day and night. There were music and people in traditional dress everywhere. And every time you ran into someone, it was interesting. So I'd have to say it was, in that sense, absolutely amazing but that was going on in the civil society part of it and on the side there is all these grey suited people who are the politicians and their advisors. and i was actually part of that um i was invited there as part of the global stocktake which is a un fccc uh, uh, process to try and provide pathways, new ways of doing things to achieve the Paris Agreement. So we were coming up with all kinds of um, practice and possible solutions because everyone was saying, it's how, not why, any longer. But in the main assembly, the the petro-states, as they're called, we're essentially trying to undermine everything and just keep going back to the why not how whatsoever and you weren't even allowed to use the words oil and gas
0: peter so- I, 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 that that stuns me and i hope you don't mind me interrupting but you know cop as we know stands for conference of the parties i would have thought the parties are those parties who are committed to mitigating climate change and doing things around the problem of climate change, not committed to prolonging fossil fuel use. My question would be, how do these people even get invited to the party? Or if they invite themselves, who lets them into the party, these fossil fuel lobbyists and so on?
2: Well, the petro states are basically run by these companies. So, the, and they've all signed up for the Paris Agreement. Oh, yes, we have to do the right thing. They're members of the United Nations. So they signed up, the 196 states that signed up in 2016. Um, but their, their whole rationale, it seems to me, is to undermine everything. Um, let me just give you a quick example of what's going on. Um, even in our small group where we had probably 200 people who were going through various processes to try and come up with these uh, solutions that we could pass on to the advisors and and members of nation states. we had representatives from saudi arabia from russia from china and so on there who and, and were these are the
0: petro states to which these are the or these are three yeah. examples of them
2: yeah and and australia used to be one of them and it's so refreshing to at least be seen as serious now when you go to ipcc and so on which i've been doing for 10 years and the uh instead of being a laggard or, a, you know, someone you can't trust. Anyway, the in, in the meeting that I was in, I was chairing, along with Josh Byrne, by the way, who is the Gardening Australia yep. person from WA, uh, we, we, uh, we were doing this together. And um, there was a woman there who just kept saying, but of course, you must see that none of this applies to some countries. We are different, and we don't uh, we, we we don't uh, want to talk about fossil fuels. We just want to talk about low emission strategies, and you know all this kind of thing. And and we kept on attacking her, not attacking. We, we were just saying, no, this is not acceptable. The Paris Agreement clearly shows this, and whatever. And anyway, after a little while, she said, oh, look, I need to go and get my instructions. I I thought, what? I've never, I mean, the instructions uh, outside the room in order to say what she needs to say. And then someone else came in for a place who was much more smiley and trying to, and and she had a go at me and said, look, the problem with all of your solutions about electrification are that... uh, uh, you're gonna run out of lithium. And I said, Look, I'm from Western Australia, which produces half of the world's lithium. There are eight new lithium mines. We are not gonna run out of yeah. lithium. So please so accept that this is just an excuse. Yeah. And the smile dropped. And you know, it this is the kind of thing you're doing all the time. People are trying to drive the agenda back. So there are these
0: back. bad actors there, Peter. Um In the limited time that we have today, can you explain how people like you, how the serious actors deal with the bad actors and how in the future they can be sidelined as much as possible?
2: Well, that's an ongoing and very uh, draining, energy draining process. Um, And... Someone like Bill Hare, who I know quite well, he was there and in the thick of these discussions, he gets very angry now because they are going backwards in in a way that is really harming this progress. However, let me just tell you that there was another process happening. It was called the uh, uh, Integrity Matters and it was... The Net Zero Commitments by Business, Finance Institutions, Cities and Regions. And they came out with a report, very detailed, about what the non-state actors can do. In other words, what you can do with civil society and the markets of the world, which are rapidly changing. They're being funded by BlackRock, who I met, and they are totally committed to this. And they are forcing these petro states into a a situation where they will be stranded. Their assets will die. They will not have a market. That's the approach taken by them. And in many ways, we are now at a stage where non-state actors are just as important as the state's and the states can do a certain amount. But if the finance world are picking it up and running with it, everybody's got to change. And that's what I saw happening. And that's what I really enjoyed about COP27. That
0: That, that is a good news story. And just by the way, the finance world owes the rest of the world, oh, about a million favours. So it's good to see them uh, coming through with a really big favour on climate um, with, with I suppose, things like divestment and things like that. Now, let's move on. So you've explained really well today, Peter, how uh, you've seen some good things, some bad things, some forces trying to counter the, the bad actors. Let's talk about what actually this COP achieved. COP 27 in Sham El Sheikh, Egypt, will be remembered for what?
2: Loss and Damage which is um the the nice way of saying reparations reparations are what you do after a war when you go back to the the responsible agents and seek to find ways of paying for the damage they've done and that is in fact the climate war is now got a fund which which will be able to help with the damage being caused in countries that didn't actually have any responsibility for that in, in the last 200 years and certainly some of the last 20 years or so as every country gets more and more fossil fuels. But the, the, the reality is they uh, they won this debate and it, in many ways it became the focus and took the focus away from mitigation, which is underway anyway. Every country has to do this net zero process We'll get on and do our bit in Australia. Every other country is going that way. So we didn't have to have another statement pushing us further in many ways. But the loss and damage was a great breakthrough. It really was an achievement.
0: And I saw a couple of good quotes around it. One of my favourite was from the uh, Pakistan climate change minister who said, excuse me, uh, this is not about accepting charity. This is a down payment on investment in our futures and in climate justice. So my last question to you, Peter, would be, how is that down payment going to be made by wealthier nations like Australia?
2: Australia's already offered a certain amount of money to a loss and damage account, along with other countries. This was what pushed it into being adopted because countries were already saying, we've got some money, we'll put it in. And that drove it. <clears throat> it will be set up and the processes of setting up a bank account like anything that we do um, has to go through a process. And, and that's what they'll now do. It won't be a very difficult thing. It'll be quite uh, easy, I think, to be able to apply for funds from it. Getting, getting uh, uh, an adequate amount will be, uh, of course, always uh, something that will be taken on uh, and be quite controversial because it's huge amounts of damage occurring all over the place. But that will be, uh, uh, you know, an acceptable process and in many ways adaptation uh, became mainstream uh, at COP27. Uh, It doesn't mean, however, that we can just uh, give up on the mitigation. They really have to go together.
0: They do, and that is very, very well said. We have about 10 seconds left uh, before this recording explodes. Uh, Seems like you're giving COP27 a pass, Mark. What would you give it out of 10?
2: Oh, it's about an 8 out of 10 because I'm a very optimistic person and I saw it as being uh, another step forward, never quite fast enough, but certainly we're getting somewhere. It's a long way further than when I started 50 years ago.
0: Well, it's good to be here. And uh, uh, Peter Newman, John Curtin, Distinguished Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University, thank you so much for coming on the Green Canary podcast today.
2: Thank you.
1: Now, Ant, you said that statistically speaking, not all interviews that we do here are going to be great. That was a great interview. I loved that interview. And I think that it was really interesting to not only hear about all of the new developments and all of the power that the private industry wields these days, but then also just hearing about, like, the atmosphere of a cop because you so rarely get insight into what actually happens there. And he gave some really good sort of colour around who actually attends the sort of uh, civil involvement as well of people just coming to the event and showing up. Yeah, it was a really fantastic piece.
0: Uh, thank you. And you're right, though. You, he he gave us an insight of a different kind. Uh, people usually cut straight to the negotiations, straight to the outcomes or the desired outcomes that perhaps weren't achieved. He told us what it was like there. He gave us the vibe. Um, he, he set the scene a little bit. Um, he also, you know, talked us through some of that stuff about, Climate finance, or, or or loss and damage, as it's called, which is terrific. Um, he also, I just found it fascinating to talk to to think of all the bad actors there. I mean, as I said to him in the question, uh, this is this is COP stands for Conference of the Parties. Why are these people spoiling the party, these people from the fossil fuel lobby? And he sort of explained how that happened. So I have a much greater sense of those who infiltrate and seek to derail or hijack a cop for their own uh, ends, but also the forces that are out there guarding against their mum. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. A uh, cop I felt was a love-in, a love-in that didn't always work, but I now understand, having spoken to Peter Newman, it's actually an arm wrestle. And it's an arm wrestle that, that that you know, those of us who seek desperately climate mitigation action didn't win really this time because mitigation, you know, there are two things that happened at this COP or two things that were on the table. Mitigation, adaptation. Mitigation is keeping uh, the effects of climate change as low as possible, hopefully to the old 1.5 Paris uh, number. Adaptation is helping countries adapt to climate change that's what we got done this time and it was great to see it happen
1: yeah yeah and i really loved how peter was optimistic as well like i do know that there were some huge disappointments with this cop and you know we shouldn't sugarcoat that but i think we ended on quite an optimistic note and i really liked how he has that outlook as well despite i'm sure being somebody who knows better than anybody else really the uh, dire consequences and situation that we're in
0: Alfie, how hard will you punch me if I say it ended on a optimistic note?
1: I'm almost tempted to close the Zoom. I don't know. All right. And for that, you have to take the next mulch story, okay? Because you have to explain what La Nina and El Nino are doing at the moment. Oh,
0: I was always going to do that anyway. Yes. So morphing (laughs) into mulch, our little tidbits at the end, we just found a terrific little, well, not terrific, but a fascinating little, little, uh, uh, story this week that shows it's research based. It shows that La Niña and El Niño events are going to be getting even stronger uh, than they currently are, and that's going to be happening a lot quicker than had previously been expected. Now, um, we know that we've had three La Niñas in a row now, back to back to back La Niñas. We know that we've seen flooding and heavy rains on a level that that uh, are pretty much unprecedented in recorded certainly white Australian history or post-colonial, I should say, because we don't know what. Um, and it's 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 been bad and it's going to get worse. And I just, look, I, I'm sorry that people can't see this, but I'll chuck it in the newsletter this week, uh, which you should subscribe to. We'll get to that in a sec. But um, it's a map, isn't it, Elfie? It's a map of the global sea surface temperature anomalies. So imagine a map of the world's oceans and the bits that are pink are much warmer than the long-term historical average and the bits that are blue are much cooler than the long-term historical average the reason i put sea surface temperature in that they're particularly pertinent to fueling these weather extremes elfie you're looking at this global map what are you seeing bunch of pink or a bunch of blue
1: I am seeing a bunch of pink and I'm seeing a bunch of pink, especially gathered off the coast of Australia on the eastern side.
0: That is correct. Uh, So sea surface temps have been something like two degrees above normal for quite a long time in the Coral Sea and large parts of the uh, oceans off eastern Australia. That is where all our La Nina has come from, La Nina weather. So La Nina let's say, influenced weather. So it's a really, really clear indication of the sort of fuel that we are providing by warming the world for these La Niña and El Niño events to get a lot stronger, as this study has said, will happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's pretty terrifying to look at, to be honest, but it's good to be aware of these kind of weather cycles and, you know, face the reality of how our world is going to be changing because of our oceans. Yes. Now, Let's look at plastic pollutions. Um, So, Ant, have you read this story? I showed you this story earlier this week, but basically it is a story from the ABC talking about tracing plastic back to the polluters. And essentially what it says is that there is this new technology that is allowing for the possibility that DNA, what is being called DNA, or sort of messages can be put into plastic so that manufacturers or retailers can be held accountable for the waste that they're putting out into the world. The idea uh, that researchers have is that eventually you could use a phone or a handheld device to scan plastic that you say find in the ocean and see who is responsible for it. Uh, There could also be the ability to see if plastic has been recycled or if companies are greenwashing and that sort of thing. This might all sound a little bit wild and probably a little bit far-fetched, but actually the European Union have already set out extended producer responsibility for plastic waste. And the theory is that if producers are held responsible for their plastic waste like well into the future, even after they've sold their like Coke bottle or sausage roll or whatever, they're forced to come up with the solutions to stop that plastic from entering the environment, which is a very interesting idea. And I'm not sure how you feel about it, Ant, especially as like you know, just like a normal consumer who has to use plastic yeah. sometimes.
0: Look, uh, in one sense, it's you broke it, you bought it. You know what I mean? It's mm. you trashed it, you paid for it. So I love it. You put DNA in plastics, you find plastics somewhere, you go, oh, you, that's your fault, you're paying for it. But maybe the consumer throw, threw it away, you know? Maybe maybe the consumer... uh broke their leg doing something stupid on a snow on a skateboard and now wants to blame the skateboard manufacturing company. Um,
1: so- but I would say that it's very hard to put plastic responsib- responsibly anywhere. Right. Cause it's always going to end up in landfill or the ocean.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely two sides to this, but I think look, what it is, is a terrific initiative. Potentially that allows accountability that allows us to trace polluters. These things there are always teething problems, there are always unforeseen problems down the track, but telling people who make plastic that it ain't the end of it once it's out your factory Mm. uh, is a good thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, now let's talk about pet food. (laughs) (laughs) Because I feel like we're always talking about our food. Why don't we just talk about pet food? Um, Would you like to take this story, Ant?
0: What I'd like to say is that pet food is some of the most disgusting stuff um i just hate pet food more and more i feed our dog whatever our scraps and he can just cope and you know he's getting a bit of a round belly actually so maybe that doesn't say good things about our diet but look why we're talking about pet food is an article published in the nature journal which you troll which you read before you go to bed every night which you read when you get up in the morning i think you are the nature journal's greatest uh consumer there elfie but Look, it, it it says that the environmental cost of uh food for pets has a terribly high impact in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. It, it said that dry food came out on top, so the kind of crunchy biscuits that you give your doggy or your cat um uh, is is good. The dry food's okay compared to the wet food, but the wet food's terrible, and that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean. You know, maybe it's not the the, the choices choicest bit of the uh the whatever animals going into it, but we're still going through that whole process, the methane of cattle, um, the land taken up to graze animals upon. What all just so we can have a happy dog? It's costly.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely. And I do think it's interesting to just like take this sort of stuff into account, you know, like, I do think that there's so much that's unavoidable right now with, you know, food production, but you know, you can have choices. And if you can choose between dry food and wet food, why not? If your animal's happy with either. But I would also say there are like 76 million dogs in the US. Did you know that, Ant? And like the population Mm -hmm. of dogs is growing. So I guess it's all just about like responsible pet ownership across the board.
0: Wow, that is such a lot of dogs. I mean, there's only 300 million Americans or thereabouts. So, six it like,
1: million. <laughs>
0: it's like one dog for four dogs. No, one dog for every four Americans. That's that yeah. is a lot of dogs. And presumably, it's something similar here in Australia. So, you know, pet food's part of the environmental equation. So, anything we can do. And, you know, I used to think kangaroo was a great option in Australia because, um, you know, roos are shot. Um, when, when there's too many of them in, in one area as deemed by farmers or, or whatever. You may not want any of our native wildlife killed, but the reality is roos do get shot. Um, I thought that was a good option until I saw an RSPCA story last month that um, roos are not being killed humanely and the RSPCA actually took their seal off any pet food that has kangaroo in it. So yeah, wow. that sort of muddied the waters. That made it more difficult. I always felt that was a kind of friendly, environmentally friendly option but it's not. So uh, possibly less meat. Your your dog or your cat don't need to eat an entirely meat diet. That's one of the key takeouts I reckon we should all take from this.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So that is all we have time for today on the Green Canary. We have covered a lot of ground today, but thank you so much for joining us. As always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded.
0: Thank you, Elfie, and I'd just like to remind you all that we are out there on Twitter as long as Twitter still exists, which is hanging on there by a thread. <laughs> Who knows? For now. Uh, at green Canary Pod is our Twitter handle. We are at Green Canary Media on Instagram. We are hello at thegreencanary.co. If you would like to email us and subscribe to our chirpy, weekly, informative green news newsletter. And that'll just about do us for this week. Now we are actually going to take a break after next week for summer. So next week will be our last one for the year. Do not miss it. We have something very special planned. Brackets. We don't actually have something very special planned, but I'm determined to make it a good pod. So consider that we have something very special planned.
1: That's a fantastic promise. Well, We'll see you next week for that. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.